of the millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. So the millennials with myself, yes, and keep you welcome back to the show. It's been interesting thus far. We've been speaking to Mazamir on Stephen Hawking and the theory of everything, his contribution to science, and also our perspective on him as a person and his religious perspectives as well, um, which is really interesting. And you can yeah, listen to the podcast of that at owner.fm forward slash C forward slash 1979 but it's 2018 this year and uh, we turn to current crises in the world and one of you know the many um, unbelievable things that have been happening recently and for more than 60 years is of course the Palestinian crisis we heard about the death of um, 18 Palestinians just last week uh, in the beginning of a six-week sit-in at the borders of the Israeli um, settlements in Palestine um, but what can I do? What can I do about this as a human being who wants to effect change that is positive? And um, one such person who viewed this as really one part of her, you know, pers- you know, mission in life um, is Sami Ali, and uh, she is a law student. She completed her undergraduate st- uh, studies in uh, law at the University of Cape Town. And after completing a course in international law and writing a legal research paper on the conflict in Israel and Palestine, she realized that international human rights law had become more than a mere interest. It had transformed into something that she wanted to seriously pursue. Let's talk about international human rights law with Samia, who is in studio now. Assalamualaikum. We're also joined by our co-host for the evening and the intern at the Voice of the Cape all the way from New Orleans and a student at uh, Georgia University and that is uh, Angela Higginson. Angela, welcome to the Voice of the Cape uh, on air. Thank you. Well, I think we're very happy to have you as well and um, we've been putting you through lots of initiation uh, adventures, <laughs> including today when you uh, visited Masjid Al-Quds in Gatesville, um, you know, first time visiting a mosque, I believe, as well. And there's a video of that on our Facebook page, so and uh, everyone can go there. We're also live streaming on our Facebook page. Let's turn to international human rights law. I'm interested in in studying it after social science what does it look like i'm 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 hopefully i'm going to finish my social science degree in politics philosophy and all of these things um what is international human rights law and what should i expect okay well international human rights law is a um a body of law obviously Mm -hmm. and um there are two different aspects to it or rather yes separate separate bodies of law um, human rights law and humanitarian law Uh And while they are two different um, two different types of law, they do apply um, together. So, what was your objective in in pursuing this? So, you've been studying law, but you don't really only want to stay in South Africa. You you were you were motivated by the crisis between Israel and Palestine. How how did that come about? Okay, so um, as you read earlier, um, my interest was sparked. Um, I remember when I read a a report on uh, the situation with the detainees. They went on a hunger strike in, yeah. in Palestine, and it wasn't the first time. So I started looking at, at the conflict and specifically that issue, and I ended up writing a research paper on it um, as part of my, um, in fulfillment of my law degree. Yeah. And 
after doing that, I, I realized that I wanted to invest myself more fully into this area of law. Um, and while corporate law is interesting, of course, um, it's just this appeal to me specifically. So, I mean, a lot of people are interested in doing this. I myself, when I heard about some of the, um, you know, uh, things that aid workers had been doing to the women, you know, um, trading helpful, yes. you know, sexual favors, deeply troubled me and said, I said to myself, I really want to work so that I can effectively change that. That's an interest of mine. But how, how do you understand what are the main pr practicalities, you know, uh, between being interested in that and actually seriously pursuing it? Okay, so I think when you are interested in something, it's, it's just a hobby of yours. It's something that you um, just like doing it. You just like doing it. And um, in comparison with um, seriously pursuing something, you end up investing so much of yourself into this. It becomes a goal of yours. And yes, that would be the difference. <laughs> So, um, in terms of what you're, what, you're, what you're actually doing at the moment, you are uh, studying a Master's in Human Rights Law at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. And uh, um, is there a difference between studying abroad in Scotland and uh, perhaps you know, studying the same degree at UCT or in other universities in South Africa? I think that there definitely is. I mean, the standard at UCT is, is very good, and I will continue to say this. Mm -hmm. um, there's no difference between <laughs> UCT and Aberdeen in yeah. that regard. However, um, it's a completely different experience being in a, in a different country, and I've had the privilege of interacting with so many other students from different nationalities and hearing about their experiences from their own countries. and. It's just furthered my own interest in pursuing human rights law, to be honest. Now, a lot of the times people criticize these bodies that um, perhaps talk about and sometimes execute human rights law issues, including the United Nations, and they criticize yeah. them for being um, really part of the problem. Um, I know that you hope to actually work in an international body that yes. that um, helps these people. How do you view the United Nations and similar bodies? Okay, so the thing about international law is that it's primarily based on the consent of states. So mm -hmm. bodies like the United Nations and the International Red Cross and Amnesty International, these organizations can only do so much. Mm -hmm. They create awareness, they try and do their best, but ultimately like I said, there's only so much you can do, and every little bit does in fact count. So if you are part of that environment, if you are working to make a difference, I think that's more important than just sitting back and doing nothing. So what is the difference in terms of change, and in terms of at least contribution when it comes to studying either human rights law and humanitarian law? Okay, so um, I can talk about studying, but I can also talk about in a working yeah, doing, environment. Yeah, exactly. Um, so human rights law would cover a wide variety of aspects of law, mm -hmm. like the right to housing, the refugee issue. Um, those are just some examples. And I volunteered at the refugee clinic at UCT, uh -huh. and that was one of the best experience of, experiences of my life. So we can life. actually do that in Cape Town as well? Um, Volunteering? Yes, you can volunteer uh -huh. at certain organizations. You can apply for internships. That's a very practical way um, to approach human rights law, I think. And did that help in any of your applications for the future? Um, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I applied for the exchange program at UCT, that's how I ended up at the University of Aberdeen. Yeah. That was one of the um, one of the experiences that I 
that I could write about and speak about. And it was also one of my reasons for um, pursuing human rights law, because I got yeah. to interact with refugees, give them advice on how to stay in South Africa, how to not go back to their own countries, which are war-torn. And it was, it was a very practical way of approaching the, the matter. Uh, I think what's, what's really also important is understanding that we have to reverse engineer our entire careers and, and that's something that I've noticed that you've done because I know the benefits and examples of, of meaningful change that human rights lawyers have done um, and so that's what I'm trying to get even though it's going to take quite a long time isn't it yeah. so and a lot of people are somewhat impatient that I want to change something tomorrow I want to you know protest which it's definitely a slow process you know, exactly. it doesn't happen yeah. overnight it's not a radical change but the important thing is that it is in fact a process mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what are some of these examples, you know, of human rights law affecting meaningful change that, that, that you've learned and that you've seen? Okay, so like I said, um, I can just talk about my experiences. Mm -hmm. my, my experiences, for example, at the refugee clinic, the way I advise clients. Um, and also interning at the different organizations. That certainly does... Um, help you explore further options and how to create this meaningful change in society. Just in South Africa, you don't even have to go abroad to do it. Um, we have such a great need for um, lawyers and especially human rights lawyers in this area. Absolutely. L let's take a break and uh, let's just uh, pay the bills and when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. So, to Lelfiat, voice of the millennials, with Yasin Kipi, igniting the youth. Welcome back to the show. In light of the Palestinian crisis, uh, we talked to Samia Ali just about how it can affect positive change in terms of our careers as students at universities and also, you know, uh, supporting these initiatives, uh, whether it's, um, you know, volunteering, etc. Um, and we also have our co-host in studio, um, uh, Angela Higginson. Um, let's talk more about this, Angela. Yeah, so you were talking about your experiences from the refugee clinic. Can you highlight some of the more interesting times you had there? Okay, so I'd like to discuss two cases, I think. The first case was um, of this man that, kept, that walked in with his wife, and unfortunately he was involved in an accident at work and he'd had his, his arm cut off. And um, obviously in the end he did receive compensation for this, but he came to us for advice. And um, I think one of the most shocking things was how often this happened at his workplace. It wasn't just him. It, happened to people that he knew in the same workplace and they just had to be allocated to a different kind of work um, but the fact is that to speak to him and to really to engage with someone like that it was it was fantastic you know I mean in terms of up until that point my my degree had been just about studying and it was the first time that I really like practically applied myself and to be able to help someone was just it made the biggest difference you know yeah and i think one of the mishaps oftentimes is that we're stuck in the theory and we end up defending people who have definitely committed the worst of crimes <laughs> and somewhat you know seemingly uh, you know disguise that as ethical so how, how do you toe that line between knowing what to 
pursue um, as as a you know you, you, at least for the future when you when you do actually practice this uh, international human rights law? Okay, we have to remember. Um, with with law you only um you're innocent until proven guilty yeah so um you have to defend your client whether or not you're doing whatever kind of law you're doing mm -hmm. um especially criminal law but um specifically in the case of of human rights law mm -hmm. um it's it's a very difficult <laughs> it's a very difficult question but i i will say this that um um yeah, Sorry, so I just lost my train of thought now. Um, it's okay. I was really <laughs> curious about you were talking about that incident at this man's workplace. Yes, yes. And uh, you helped him legally, is that correct? Yes. yes so do you think the courts are the best outlet to create systemic change within the workplace? Well, often, you have, I mean, you have to look at our society. It can be very difficult for pe and very expensive and um, timely for people who live in rural areas to approach the courts. And they don't often know what to do in that situation. So I think that education is, is very important in this case, especially like from, from primary school already. You need to start off by um, educating children on not just um i think it's life orientation right where they just yeah. physical education you need to do more than that yeah, yeah, yeah you need to explain to them about the situation in society and what kind of help can they get if they if their family's in that situation mm -hmm. i think that's quite important so education is uh, great it, it will co uh, solve a lot of those problems yes, a lot yes. of studies have shown this but when you have this one problem in the here and now and people are getting hurt what is the best way to activate change the okay. courts are one one solution but as you said it's costly and yes time consuming yes. so what are the other outlets so that's why it's very important law firms they have they offer uh assistance um something called pro bono cases so you take on cases for people who can't really um afford to apply for legal help and you assist them in this way so i think that's quite an important avenue to take Yes. Now, in terms of uh, just understanding and maintaining a, a level of balance between human rights itself, which is often disputed when it comes to cultural and religious um, issues, uh, how do you maintain that importance of, of human rights while still maintaining respect for all of these differences, uh, whether that's moral, religious or cultural? I think that's a very interesting question because we actually had this debate in my, yeah. in my class uh -huh. where like I said, it's quite a, quite a lot of us from different backgrounds, um, not just uh, Western backgrounds. Yeah. And these human rights are universal, like the right to dignity, the right to life, the right to choose your own religion, to work, to get married. But in certain cultures, the, that's not necessarily the case. And I think an important culture to highlight is, for example, Saudi Arabia. Yes. Like the right to freedom of religion, it's, it's not the same as, as in other Western countries. Mm -hmm. So... Um, there are certain <laughs> there are certain rights that are predominantly westernized you mm -hmm. could say but other rights remain very important and constant in all societies like the right to dignity i think that's that has particular um importance well i certainly know also one of the things that a lot of kryptonian young muslims have difficulty with is really getting getting into law because of the fear that there's a lot of philosophical debates around things and yes. not really feeling comfortable about their own religion to mm -hmm. engage in those debates does it get very philosophical and h how do you maintain your own personal 
um, stand when it comes to these philosophical debates? I have to admit, that wasn't actually my experience of it. I however, yeah. however, I did find that law is very much um, theory-based. And when you do it, you approach it in a way that you don't approach other subjects, especially, I think, at UCT, as I'm sure you know. It's just a different discipline entirely. So when you are, for example, interpreting any religious text, you tend to look at it at, in a very literal manner instead of instead of the way it's perhaps supposed to be considered as. I'm sorry if that's too broad, but I don't want to go into too much detail about No, absolutely. That. I think that's really important. Um, so you can become quite cynical, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you just need to be careful of that to maintain your own beliefs and... Now, one of the things also, and I'm not sure if, if you receive uh, that attention in, in Aberdeen, but I know South Africa is seen as this model authority in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how do you, you know, approach human rights law being a South African as well? I have to admit, I was very proud to be South African, yeah. always am, but especially in, in, my, um, in my human rights law class, yeah. because um, we look so much at South African law, like mm-hmm. our cases are just phenomenal, the way the Constitutional Court has interpreted these human rights, like the mm. right to housing in, in Khrutboam, um, the right to water, Mazibuku, um, the right to health care. It's, it's really, the Constitutional Court has done a, an excellent job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and these are contemporary debates that are also starting to arise about land, about yes. um, racism. And we were talking earlier about, um, you know, something that you're currently working on, reverse racism. Um, all of these things. Um, uh, do you debate whether, you know, um, blacks can be racist, etc., as well in law? Of course, especially uh, amongst ourselves. I think Angela wants to know about that as well. <laughs> so, 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 so oh, I think it's an important yeah. issue for sure. I mean, like. Um, can you just explain your your view quickly because i haven't actually heard it is that okay Mm -hmm. well my view i try to take a very unbiased Mm -hmm. stance i just try to take in all of these different viewpoints and so especially for the vicky momberg case the backlash to that was a lot of white people were saying oh would this would she have gotten that same sentence if she was black or if the the person she insulted was white Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people And uh, within this, and even for issues dealing with black economic empowerment, are saying that in post-apartheid era, they've almost whiplashed. They've gone way to the other side and started imposing systemic problems that, I guess, persecute whites. And so people adopt this term, reverse racism. But there is also that controversy even within that term, because to be racist, is there do you have to hold institutional power Mm -hmm. what about the historical effects of racism do you have to have those certain social structures in place to impose racism and also there's the whole fact of racism the person who is being racist has to believe their race is superior so in post-apartheid south africa are they saying that they're, that the black race or whatever race you are is superior and therefore that is racism then or do you have to have that institutional power aspect to it and so I was wondering how that all plays out in the courts and do you see some sort of bias towards one race or the other I mean we've yet to have a case like that and I would, I would look forward to seeing how that goes however um, I mean you have to look at what constitutes hate speech um, or hate crime and 
I think that Parliament is currently coming out with an act. I've been a little bit behind with the news, mm-hmm. <laughs> being stuck on that side of the world. <laughs> the snow, right? Um, yes, but I'm, I'm sure it would apply to yeah. all races. If you use a certain type of language, you will be prosecuted for it. If you impair someone's dignity, you can be prosecuted for it. I, that's just my opinion. But yeah. yeah. I think you'll see. It's just interesting because right now in the media I've found multiple cases mm-hmm. of white people being racist towards other other races. Yes. But and that might be because again that's a, a horrible and unacceptable. But is the opposite happening or is the media just not covering it? And so it's interesting to see moving forward if there'll be more instances like Especially that with or the if land, there's just the no land evidence issue, right? yeah exactly i've seen quite a lot of that on facebook it's it's a bit mm-hmm. worrying um the language that all races use towards one another it's not just you know um white people towards black people it's it's the opposite as well mm-hmm. but i think it's um I, I think it's inexcusable we all have to treat each other with respect especially in this um d- mm-hmm. democracy ultimately yeah. we'll, okay we'll take a break and we'll come back we'll continue the discussion